This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. All right, today I'm thrilled to have menopause fitness expert Deborah Atkinson. She's the best selling author of You Still Got It Girl and Hot Not Bothered. She's the host of the Flipping 50 podcast with over 1 million downloads. And her TED Talk is Everything Women in Menopause Learned About Exercise, Maybe a Lie. She's a 37 year fitness expert, prior senior lecturer in kinesiology, founder of Flipping 50 the first and only online fitness membership dedicated exclusively to women in menopause. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me. I love chatting with you always. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because I think one of the misnomers or misconceptions, and I certainly would have been one of those people when I was a newly practicing nurse and nurse practitioner, is that everyone can kind of exercise the same way. And so Let's talk through some of the well-meaning individuals, and I say this from a good place, it's not a criticism, but those well-meaning 20 and 30-something fit pros that are out there that are advocating for things that could potentially be really problematic for women as they're navigating perimenopause into menopause. So let's unpack like why we have to exercise differently at this stage in our lives. Yeah, well, and I'd love to start kind of with that same respect. To a nod at those people, it's not their fault. We're still an industry operating on guidelines and position statements that collectively look at men and women of all ages, a very wide age range. That's how here's your frequency, your duration, the intensity that you should do. That's what it's based on is collectively. And and as you know, looking at lab norms, it's very much like that. So no one actually fits an average or the norm. And so you really got to look at what's going on for you. And I prefer the blueprint. So it's a teen tiger beat quiz. If you said yes, then you go this way. If you said no, then you go this way. And we finally get to navigate where do you need to be right now? And where you are right now may not be where you were six months ago if you're a woman in menopause or where you will be three or six months from now. So it's a constant, give me the feedback. What's my body telling me? What signs do I have? As well as labs, but we have this immediate feedback when you wake up in the morning, how do I feel? So that said, it's neither your trainer's fault or the fitness instructor's fault or yours, because that's the way you've been told over and over. And and so many authority figures are still using that because that's the best they have. So you're, you came from the medical world and you know the, what are the statistics on the amount of nutrition education doctors received in medical school? Well, if you look at how much exercise education did they receive in medical school, you know, also very small. So when they give that advocation of exercise or just walk, you know, you've got to realize that's skimming the top of the iceberg. Better recommendations would be, I recommend you go and speak to an expert who's maybe got a medical exercise background who can really deep dive into what's happening for you. So why are we different? Well, obviously, the biggest thing is I hear this over and over, and I'm sure you do too. We could probably look at our notebooks and they'd be exactly the same. Nothing I'm doing works anymore. 
what I used to do that worked doesn't. Those statements over and over again. So if I can interpret that for everyone listening, what you were saying is when I had this set of hormones and I was doing this exercise and this diet, that worked. Now I have a new set of hormones. I'm trying to do what I did when I had that set. That suddenly a light bulb, I think, probably went off in your head. I get it. That makes perfect sense that if you're trying to do what used to work with that set, it won't. So it's just time. And it's such a great opportunity to change the strategy and the what you are doing so that you can win the game again. And I went off on a rant about this on my own timeline yesterday because I think there is an almost message that's starting to come out. But even in that almost message, something is missing. So many people are now saying, you know, women in midlife, their bodies are just not meant to exercise that way. It's not going to work anymore. And I think, unfortunately, that paints the picture that, yeah, you're done. You're dead. That's over. We're slowing down. And that couldn't be further from the truth. The answer is catering to the feedback your body gives you right now and potentially doing less exercise or less frequently, less intense exercise. And we can talk about those nuances will get you the fitness you want right now. It's not that you have to settle for less results. You may just need less exercise to get there. And it may also be a window in time. It's a moment in time when like if you were pregnant, if you had the good fortune to and the blessing to be there, you did not exercise the same way healthy you prior to or after pregnancy did. That makes perfect sense because because we can see it, because we know we're creating life and it's a nine-month journey. Well, this menopause journey, unfortunately, it doesn't have a timeline on it. For a lot of women, it's kind of ambiguous about when it starts and when it's going to end. But you are in that kind of a moment in time. So changing what you're doing during this time, and yet when you're in post-menopause, things will change again, and you will be able to do more. If you are an exercise lover and you want to get back to doing more and doing performance-based things or adventure things or races, you can do that. No one's saying that you cannot. It's just pay attention to the feedback your body is giving you and the hormones that you have right now. I think it's really important to, and you obviously allude to this, this bioindividuality piece, recognizing that what we need in terms of physical activity at 20, 30, 40, 50, and beyond can look very Mm -hmm. different. And I think it's important because unfortunately, I feel like there's a lot of antiquated dogma. I know that we talk quite a bit about this. But the one that I think of the most is this concept of exercise more, eat less as being, you know, the mainstay that people really, I mean, they hold tight to this, you know, really antiquated belief system and it can really mess with their heads because I get women that will come to me and they'll say, well, you know, the same thing that you mentioned, you know, what used to work for me doesn't work anymore. I do CrossFit and then I'm exhausted and then I can't get out of bed. And then you know, it starts this really vicious cycle. And I think for many of us, like tapping in intrinsically and doing the things that make us feel good, make us feel energized is a really important distinction because there were definitely years where I would take essentially, it was like a CrossFit-esque class. It was like a conditioning class 
And in my late thirties, I started finding it took me longer to recover. And then as I entered my early forties, and this is when perimenopause really hit me hard, I would get migraines. I mean, I couldn't stay hydrated enough. I was getting up really early in the morning. So let's, you know, touch on some of the physiologic changes. What are some of the things that start to happen to women's bodies as they're, you know, maturing? Someone the other day was saying, you know, they didn't like the middle age terminology and they said, how about we say more mature women? I said, okay, you know, I'm willing to use that vernacular, but what are some of the physiologic changes that start to happen with regard to our joints and our muscles as we are chronologically getting older? And I want to be really clear. And this is something that I did not know until I was in my forties about peak bone mass, peak muscle mass, how critically important these things are to really focus on in our twenties and thirties and not to wait until you're in menopause to suddenly go, Oh, (laughs) that was 20 years ago, or that was 15 years ago. I had no idea. So let's talk about some of the physiologic changes because I think that's really important. Yeah. Love that you brought that up too. And this is really, I think the underlying thread, you know, I've been in fitness for 37 years, you mentioned, and you know, so much of the time someone thinks that's about selling sweat, you know, or selling exercise and the fitness part of it. But what it's really about is the ability to be a better mom or be a better parent, a better partner, a better CEO, a better employee, or the gifts that you have in the world, you can't give without this vehicle working right. And these women right now, those of us who are in this moment, are the biggest potential health influencers in the world because each one has such a ripple effect. And we will do our job when we turn around to our daughters and our nieces and those women, younger women, we influence and have them really put the emphasis in the right place when they're in their 20s and their 30s. And I think for so many of us in menopause, midlife and beyond, or I'm not supposed to use that word, prime, How's that? <laughs> Prime and beyond. We got away with much of the things that we did. Many of the things we did truly weren't serving us, but we got away for what you brought up. We were at our peak of muscle mass and we were at our peak of bone density. So we peak in muscle at about 25, age 25. And that's a plus or minus. We don't know exactly where that point is. And we peak at our bone density at about age 30. Meaning what we're doing is pouring into those banks, really. And so what we do prior to that really matters more so with bone. So if you have young children, you have adolescent children before puberty, they have the opportunity most of all. But even after puberty, and they're reaching that point younger and younger, young girls for sure, you know, sixth grade and fifth grade. And part of that is because of our weight and obesity issue among children. But we don't close the door. So there still is room. We used to think that maybe that was it, that bone density was really there. Well, we're in big trouble if we lose one to 3% of bone density every year and you want to live to a hundred and you reached your peak at, you know, in your teens or at 25, even then. So jumping, walking, weight bearing, you know, and if you compare putting kids in sports, swimming to gymnastics, You might say, well, gymnastics is so much more risky. Potentially, yes, but the bone density of a gymnast is far better than that of a swimmer. So yeah, put them in the water. Swimming is wonderful for so many, many things. And I think you have swimmers, but we put them in the weight room too. 
they need surf and turf, right? Just like at the restaurant, you got to do both. And that will make them better swimmers in the long run. But that is better as we age. So there is this moment at every decade of our lives where here's the focus this year or this decade to improve the way you will age later and get to menopause and drive through it easier, cruise through it. So 20s and 30s, that decade, we're going to really take confident young women, get them into the weight room and let them strut around while they feel good about their bodies. They have confidence and help them pick up heavy weights. And I think actually today it's exciting, but I think that is sexy. That is actually where young girls want to be. And they're seeing strong. We're seeing it all over. You know, I think there's, yes, there's this era of bar classes and yoga is awesome. But I think we're also seeing pick up heavy things, lift heavy shit. And that's the message we're telling them. And we're creating strong women that way inside and out. So I love that. And then it 30. So those heavy weights and higher impact exercise help with bone density. And here's where women in their prime and beyond, we have this a little backwards. So we think because we've been educated to learn weight bearing exercises, good, we tend to think that walking and walking more will be better. But unfortunately, there's something called minimum effective stress. And there's not enough minimum effective stress in walking over and over on the same body weight that you already can handle. So if you can walk a mile, you're getting some bone density benefit from that compared to having been on the couch. But you're not getting more bone density benefit by walking two miles because we haven't changed the stress on your bone. So it's not the same if I said, here's how we can affect positively your muscle. Reaching muscular fatigue with a lightweight, more repetitions, or a heavyweight, fewer repetitions, will help your muscle. The same cannot be said for bone density. So we have to lift a heavyweight fewer times in order to really affect bone density. And the only outside of that, the outlier, is progression. We all need to start lighter and progressively move to heavier to be safe and lay that foundation but joints and ligaments need that progressive overlay of stimulus. And as we age, we need it slower and slower. So, and the reason being is we are a little bit more prone to injury. And here's the caveat, and I think we'll see more of this, but it's a really hard thing to study because obviously, you know, researchers are not real keen on the idea of let's see if we can cause an injury, right? That's not a great study. So what we have to do is collect data after the fact of what injuries happened, you know, and we're only able to look at it that way. So it will be slower to come, but we don't know exactly the reason. But women who are probably in menopausal years, perimenopause, just postmenopause, are more prone to injuries like itis, you know, tendonitis, and many of you will identify better if I just list them off, things like plantar fasciitis, tendonitis, hip bursitis, you've got tennis elbow, those things are definitely more common at midlife and beyond. We know there is a relationship with hormones, we don't know exactly what that relationship is. But it means that we've got to take better care. And it could be this is totally theory, but I think it's a collective look at 
you know, our nutrition over the years, if we've dieted and we've skimped and not been supplementing, not looked at, I've took this out. So how am I taking it in elsewhere? We haven't been a, done a great job of that. And part of it is we were that era of, you know, do I take a multivitamin or am I just peeing it out? And a lot of us were just like, oh, forget it. You know, I'm not going to do that. You know, and I, I don't know about you, but if I look at my counter, it's like a pharmacy over here. And I'm totally back on the bandwagon and realize I've got to pour that all back in or this vehicle driving down the road is not going to work very well. So I think we've got to do some catching up and really stay on top of what's our micronutrient sufficiency and are we there? But we also have to look at, you know, sleep. Have we shortchanged ourselves there? That's going to play into either illness or injury and almost always does. So we know this because if you're sick, you know, what do we do? We sleep. We sleep to recover. We rest more. It's like your body saying, if you're not going to listen and do this rest on your own, I'm going to give you a reason to rest. So here you go. Just take the load off, right? And likewise, I think some of us know when we feel like we're coming down with something, if we go to bed, we get a really good night's sleep, we can avoid it. And, and intuitively, we know this is true. And yet we go to bed an hour later, get up an hour earlier because we want the house to look right or, you know, all the other hats that we're wearing as CEO or whatever, we still cannot stop thinking about the dirty dishes in the dishwasher, you know, and in all of the little things we try to juggle. So it's injury is far more common. So we've got to really progressively slowly start progressively, then we can find that fine point. Where is too much? And before you've really gone too far, you can back off of that point and keep that sweet spot for a little bit longer and avoid injury. So often people will start exercising who haven't been and find that they get hurt. You know, the negative is when I exercise, I get hurt and putting those two things together, unfortunately. But what exercise probably did is made you aware of an imbalance that was already there. And because it's like music in the car on the radio, if you, there's rap music in the background, you may be able to deal with it. But if somebody turns the radio up, it's like, I can't stand that. <laughs> can't take it. And that's kind of what happens to your body. It's like we just amplified it. And so now you became aware that that was there. And I think if you can reframe coming up with this happened to me, it's a great lesson and opportunity for it's not just potentially about my foot, this plantar fasciitis. It's maybe a reason to look at my sleep, my micronutrients, and the way I'm approaching my overall stress load on my body because exercise is stress, diet is stress, and we have to look at the whole thing and more so amplified in that middle of midlife, middle of menopause moment. Do you find yourself struggling to get a good night's sleep? If so, you may be dealing with a hidden mineral deficiency. It is not at all uncommon in perimenopause and menopause to deal with sleep 
challenges. And we know that one of many contributory reasons for poor sleep can be a reduction in specific minerals that help regulate sleep quality, including magnesium, which is involved in GABA, which is our body's main calming neurotransmitter. We also know that we need potassium to create melatonin. And this is a hormone that is a master antioxidant, but is also utilized to help induce sleep. We also think about things like zinc, which can balance excitatory neurotransmitters like glutamate. And if it's overactive, meaning if your glutamate levels are too high, it can prevent your brain from becoming more relaxed and inducing sleep. And lastly, selenium increases both our deep sleep and sleep duration. All these minerals matter a lot for sleep and any imbalances or deficits can have a major impact on the quality of sleep you get each night. And that's why I love Beam Minerals. They offer a full spectrum mineral supplement that gives you every essential mineral your body needs in the right doses, all in a highly absorbable liquid form. All you do is take a shot of beam minerals about an hour before bed. Don't worry, it tastes like water and you'll replenish all of your body's minerals in about 30 seconds and give your brain what it needs for deep restorative sleep. I've been using this product over the last several months. I've really been impressed with the improvement in my sleep metrics, which I like to share on social media with my followers. And if you want a simple way to improve your sleep, head over to www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. That's www.bminerals.com and use code Cynthia for 20% off your first order. Have you guys heard about a bioactive whole food on the market with 5,000 published research studies backing it? When my oldest son needed to go on antibiotics a few months ago, I discovered Armour Colostrum and the benefits for him and his recovery from being on antibiotics have been instrumental in me now recommending this to my dairy non-sensitive patients and clients. Armour's Colostrum strengthens immunity ignites metabolism, fortifies gut health, promotes hair growth and skin radiance, and powers fitness performance and recovery. My son has mentioned to me over and over again how great his gut feels, how he has improved his digestion and gut function as well. Colostrum is a rich, exclusive source of immunoglobulins or antibodies that optimize our immune defense even during cold and flu season. And we know that mucosal barriers house over 80% of our body's immune cells, including including the antibodies IgG and SIG-A. And these immunoglobulins bind and intercept harmful particles like viruses, bacteria, and toxins, blocking them from crossing into the barriers into our bloodstream. And armrest colostrum contains the highest levels of SIG-A and IgG to ensure your most fortified first line of protection. It's sustainably sourced. And it's important to know that you want to mix colostrum only with cold liquids or foods or dry scoop it into your mouth. This is also great for the oral microbiome. And we've worked out a special offer for my everyday wellness community where you can receive 15% off your first order. Go to tryarmra.com slash Cynthia15 or enter Cynthia15 to get 15% off your first order. That's T-R-Y-A-R-M-R-A.com slash Cynthia15. You definitely want to check it out. So much to unpack there and so beautifully Mm -hmm. stated. I think that on so many levels, middle age 
perimenopause, menopause really forces us to look at what is serving us or not. I love that you touched on the itis. So for anyone that's listening, inflammation in an acute phase is fine, but chronically. And if you think about the statistic I read most recently, that 88% of Americans are metabolically unhealthy. So that means 88% of people are either diabetic, pre-diabetic, we have, we're becoming an increasingly unhealthy population. And so inflammation gets magnified in middle age. And as we creep closer to menopause, you know, the 12 months and beyond of no longer having menstrual cycles, it's even more critically important to, you know, kind of dial in on those lifestyle pieces and the nutrition and certainly how frequently you're eating. I always say eat less often. People don't necessarily have to embrace fasting, but we should be eating less often and certainly really getting honest about your connection with nature. I think one of the, the blessings that came out of COVID was that I walk outside every day, generally in the morning, some days it's a mile, some days it might be more, but it's become something that I really crave. My body craves this connection to nature that I was probably not doing enough before, but I love that you you know mentioned for so many women that they enter into this phase in their lives that they have to exercise differently. And they have to be much more attuned to injuries and, you know, aches and pains they didn't otherwise have. I have no problem sharing that I started developing plantar fasciitis, I think when I was 38 and I knew exactly what it was when I got out of bed, I only have it in one foot. And what I found was that depending on how much nightshades, so nightshades are tomatoes and potatoes and eggplant, which I don't even like eggplant, but I love peppers. <laughs> if I eat too many that foot will ache because I'm already gluten and grains and dairy free. And so, you know, for me, it's like, it's the little clues that I need to kind of tune in. What's also interesting is I started developing maybe in the last six to 12 months and it's not a weight related thing. And there wasn't a weight change. I started getting some pain in my right knee. And I was saying to my husband, it was enough that I didn't want to run. I would still walk. I could walk on a treadmill, walk outside. I was very conscientious about how I was doing box jumps and, you know, doing, you know, progressive weight training. And I found it wasn't until I started doing hormone replacement therapy and my body started getting a little less inflamed, you know, a little more estrogen on board, a little more testosterone, mm -hmm. yeah. a little more progesterone, all of a sudden those aches that I hadn't really thought a lot about all of a sudden, all those things went away. And so as our hormones are fluctuating, as our peak bone mass is reached as our peak muscle mass is reached. And we've gone beyond that. We have to be cognizant of the fact that all these little changes over time can add up. And it might be like my GYN feels strongly that 35 is really the peak of everything. And that we slowly start losing those sex hormones. You said, you yeah. know, you may not be cognizant of the change in your menstrual cycle, heavier periods, more PMS, tender breasts, et cetera, until you hit your early forties. But really that shift starts to happen around 35. And I think for so many of us, myself included, I had kids in my thirties. I was so tired because I had two kids, two years apart that I just chopped it up to being a parent. But really what was starting to happen when we're getting these shifts in growth hormone, we're getting these changes in sex hormones where, you know, we don't bounce back. Maybe our sleep isn't as restorative as we want it to be. Maybe we're not realizing that that really intense. I'm going to pick on orange theory as an example, orange theory, fitness. I know women who do that four and five days a week. And I just look at them and go, you just look so inflamed. That's like the opposite of what you should be doing, but let's unpack 
what are some of the modalities that are really important for women in middle age? Like I start to think about, you can still have intensity of exercise, Mm -hmm. but you're not out there killing yourself. Like I know when Mm -hmm. I look back retrospectively at what I did 15 years ago versus now, I'm like, I don't even want to work out like that. Like that was, I'd almost want to vomit when I was done working out because it was so intense. I'm like, I don't even want to do that kind of activity anymore. Yeah, such a great point. So, well, we've got to come back to, so we're peaking in muscle mass at 25. And that means usually for both about five years later, we're definitely starting to withdraw it. So it's like the bank closed and that's how much you had in. Now you're going to start to withdraw unless you were consciously doing something about it. And many, many women who find themselves in menopause we're doing something, but not strength training mm-hmm. often, right? And so it's like, if you weren't, now's the best time to start. And by the way, it is never too late. I just recently pulled studies about strength training starting with older adults, 85 to 97. That's the oldest that I can find studies about. You know, we will potentially be that generation where they're studying us from 97 to 105, but there is proof you can gain strength. And at that point, success may be getting out of the chair all by yourself. And, you know, my mom's in the nursing home right now, just broke her hip. So being able to get up and go to the bathroom by herself when she wants to and not waiting for someone to come and help, I mean, that's success, right? So, What we need to be doing first and foremost, if you're not doing it, is strength training. Anything else is a second or third. And that is the one thing that will help you not only decelerate the rate of aging, but reverse aging, literally. So, you know, if you thought it was, you know, possible or the fountain of youth in that jokingly, you know, way we say it, it's absolute proven that we can do it. We improve the mitochondria. And in six months of strength training twice a week, which is very reasonable, I don't think anybody can throw up arms about 20 or 30 minutes, two times a week, you can reverse the effects of aging of 179 genes associated with aging. Six months, twice a week, I mean, really get started because then by happy new year, we'll be celebrating you, right? So hugely important. And that's an under the hood change. But what does that equate to? You know, if you're strength training, you're improving your lean muscle mass. So the muscle we so desperately want to see and the fat we want to keep at bay or lose if we've got some, you will be doing that too. So it's a two for one, we get the effects of vanity that we all want. Truly, that's what gets us all off the couch. My mom's now 94. When she was 87, she said to me, you know, and patted her stomach, is there, could you show me a few exercises to get rid of this? I'm just like, oh my God, you know, she's got a hip replacement, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, but yes, whatever you want, right? We're going to do that. (laughs) So it doesn't matter what motivates you, you get it all. And that's hugely important. So strength training, strength training, strength training, midlife women, And in this moment we're in really still, we're coming out of Cynthia's, you know, we're 18 months, you know, basically into post pandemic and we had a global dumbbell shortage, who knew, right? And so you were at home, your gym was closed and you couldn't order dumbbells from Amazon, though you could order chips and salsa and, you know, queso and all other things from restaurants that you love. 
And that was a problem. So if you happen to be in the perfect storm, a woman in her latter stages of perimenopause, early stage of postmenopause, you had the accelerated loss of muscle happening because of that. Because as estrogen goes down, that estrogen is a stimulus for holding on to lean muscle tissue. And when that stimulus is gone, that three-legged stool, now you've got to pick up the slack somewhere else. And your two best friends are strength training and increasing your intake of high quality protein. So, you know, one or the other of them helps your muscle protein synthesis. The two of them together are even more powerful. Now, I think that's so important because many people use the pandemic to remain strong and lean. And and I happened to just purely by happenstance, I had ordered a bunch of stuff before we went into the pandemic, just completely by pure happenstance. So we had a, a moderate amount of equipment. I have two teenage boys and I'm not sure we would have survived had we not had TRX fans <laughs> and all sorts of things. But I know one of the questions that has come up repeatedly for women in my monthly group is, okay, two days of strength training at a minimum. How do I know I'm working out intensely enough to stimulate muscle protein synthesis? Because I think it's very easy for mm-hmm. people. I mean, anyone can go grab a kettlebell or mm-hmm. can go grab a 20 pound you know, dumbbell and do some physical activity, do some strength training. But where is the sweet spot? Like how much load on that muscle? And the other part of that question is like someone at 45 versus 65. Are there kind of parameters that you like to utilize? Because there was one woman in one of my groups who's actually in her late sixties. And she said, you know, what do you recommend for someone at 70 versus 45 or 50? And I said, I'll I'll definitely ask Deborah, but I mean, those are the kinds of questions that start to come up with people aren't sure they need guidance about how much intensity in order to stimulate muscle growth. Yes. Great questions. Okay. So in terms of strength training, when we talk intensity, the way we gauge it is, do you reach muscle fatigue? And that is the best way to state it. So someone could say, well, if we were comparing weights, like 20 pounds versus a 10 pound weight, that the 20 pound weight would be more intense if we use that. But it's not necessarily true. If you put that weight down before you've reached muscular fatigue, then you've made it a wash So it has to be about reaching muscular fatigue. So what that means is actually your selection of the weight is based on if I said, I'd love for you to do 20 repetitions, and that's a fairly high number. So low numbers would be 10 or fewer. So if you're only going to do five repetitions and you reach fatigue, you know it's got to be very heavy, right? And if you are doing, say, 28 to 30, and that's about as high as I would go. Mm -hmm. And the reason I would go there would be we're really wanting to focus on gait. We really want to focus on some performance-related types of things and functional movements. That word is thrown around. So I really broke one of my own rules by throwing it out there right now. So if you have questions on that, we'll come back to it. But 20 repetitions to point out is kind of mid-range. It's a little on the higher end, a very safe place to start. So we're not going to wear your joints out by doing too many, but we're also not going to overstress your connective tissue, the joints and ligaments that need probably more adaptation than your muscles do. You may put that weight down, in fact, and say, I think I could have done even more. And that's a great place to start. 
because your ligaments need that time in between where you could have done more for the muscle. But fatigue is very different when we talk about being overall tired, like we could ring you out and drag you out of the studio when you're done. That's just overall fatigue and tired. That's not what we're looking at. And I think there's a meme that floats around, but it's probably one of the best things I've ever seen on social media that any exercise can make you tired. Only certain exercise makes you better. And that's what you're looking for. So fatigue, when we talk about strength training, is in the end of every set. When I've asked you to do 20 repetitions, by the time you're at 17, 18, 19, and 20, you're wondering, Am I going to actually be able to get these last couple? Or I'm feeling like I'm starting to cheat and maybe feeling this come up and I'm using other muscles and trying to maybe swing it a little bit more because I'm the muscle is done. It's tired. When you put that weight down, that doesn't mean you then are suddenly sore or broken or hurt. It means probably in about a minute and a half, two minutes, you'd be able to pick that up again and do another set. You will recover. That muscle just temporarily got to the point of temporary exhaustion. And that overload, what you're doing is that overload causes the muscle to break down. And the strength that happens during repair between that Monday session and that Thursday session That's when the muscle doesn't just repair and say, oh, we had some micro tears. And so we're going to put that back together. It says, no, we might have to do that again. So I'm going to get a little stronger this time. And that's why when you begin, you might be able to pick up 10 pounds. And over the period of weeks, you might actually say, you know what, I need 15 pounds to reach fatigue. 10 is just not doing it anymore. That's why you get stronger because those muscles are resilient and they overcome what they were first prone to. So what, whatever caused them fatigue, but here's the thing, women often premeditate. So if I say we're going to do three sets of 20 repetitions, it is not at the end of those three sets, you should be at fatigue. It's the, at the end of first, that one set All I want you to focus on is set number one. Before you get to 20, I want you out fatigue. And then when you come back for the second set, you may pick up a different weight. You may need to, but then you deal with set two only when you get to set two. So each and every set then really matters. And that's most important. There's a volume of studies coming out about strength training for women over 40 saying that we do better with a higher volume. We need more volume. So here's the trick. We're on a tightrope and we have to walk this really fine line between how do I get enough stimulus, enough volume, and remember that if the volume of my work goes up, the volume of my recovery must also go up so that I don't risk adrenal fatigue, so that I have adequate recovery. And so that we all keep in mind, the goal is not to get better at the gym. The goal is for what we do in the gym to help us get better at life and have great energy the rest of the day. You should not feel like you need to spend 23 hours on the couch. You should feel like, I feel so glad, so invigorated that I did this and I can think much more clearly and my appetite is stable. I don't have cravings. 
And anything different than that, disrupted sleep, tons of fatigue, you could take a nap right after your workout or you're craving all day long, like got to have carbohydrates. I need something sweet. That's a sign that exercise is not quite right for you. I think that's really important to be attuned to how your body feels. Now, when we talk about muscle fatigue back in the dark ages, when I was learning muscle physiology, and I'm sure we know a heck of a lot more now, is it the actual lactic acid buildup that drives that muscle soreness? Because I know there's like, you know, acute muscle fatigue, and then there's this delayed onset muscle fatigue that can go on. And how do we kind of differentiate? I'm presuming that they're both beneficial, but how much is too much? Like, how can we use, what's the barometer we use? I would imagine if you can't get out of your chair, you might have done too much because you're just so sore. So first of all, I'm going to admit this right now. So I can't pronounce this word. So I'm going to need your help. So the Iowa football players. So rabinosis, is that the word? Rhabdomyolosis. Thank you. See, I knew you'd know that (laughs) word. But we're seeing that in even women who are going to boot camps, you know, with the four or five, six days a week or who are going to CrossFit. And and I don't love to throw any program under the bus. And by the way, I give great kudos to the CrossFit environment for what they've done with the culture and bringing people in and keeping them. But the frequency with which you do things and the quality of any program is still only as good as the coach whose eyes are on you and that program. So that needs to be said, no matter what it is you're doing. So if we're causing a lot more breakdown than is necessary, we're going way beyond. And yes, if you can't sit down, stand up from the toilet, I mean, that's a sign we've really had a lot of micro tearing beyond. So it's kind of excessive damage. And I know a lot of women love to feel a little bit sore, but I will also say this because there are women who are disappointed when they don't feel sore, but recovery and your likelihood of getting sore is very unique to individuals. So there are some individuals who really very rarely feel soreness, but they have reached muscular fatigue at the end of a set. They've reached the overload and yet they tend not to. We don't know exactly why that is, but we don't know if that's a certain enzyme in their muscle or their body and or the void or lack of one in someone who tends to get more sore. But you probably already know who you are. You've had enough history to know whether it's exercise or it's gardening all day, you know, that you do tend to get sore if you do too much or you almost never feel soreness or respond very quickly and recover. So it's a unique to you thing. And that's true of your time to recover in general. Olympic athletes, you know, let's say they were all on a team and they were all 22 years old and very young, which is probably pretty typical of Olympians. But teammates doing the same workouts could have a very different recovery period that is true for them. It's very unique. It's somewhat genetic, but it's very unique to individuals. So it's why individual coaches will then need to step in and say, you know, somebody needs a day off, one more day off before they come back to that workout to attain the same level of fitness and not be breaking down. So it does not mean that you're less fit than somebody else. I think we've always thought the sooner you can do another high intensity, high quality workout, the faster you will become more fit. 
But as we age, that is less true. So if you are only just breaking down those muscles, we will be losing it. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I recommend that every household in the world have a smart scale so that you're measuring what is the result of your daily habits and your weekly habits of exercise and the nutrition that you're observing. What's happening with the amount of muscle you have, what's happening with the amount of fat you have, and not just your weight. That's feedback there. That is your own scientific study. And that will help you uniquely target what's happening for you. I love that you brought up the smart scale. I've always been a fan of not weighing myself and not, you know, not telling my clients, but as I've gotten more mature, I use it as a, even if it's once a week, twice a week, couple times a week, not so that people perseverate over the number because it's very easy to get fixated on number. I want to be X weight, but the smart scale, what's really amazing about it is I can track my body fat. I can track my muscle mass. I can track my water weight. And so that is far more important and valuable information than the actual, just here's the composite number of you stepping on the scale this morning, which can go up and down by gosh, anywhere from one to five pounds on a day, depending on what you've eaten the day before, how good your sleep has been, whether or not you're dehydrated. So I love that you touched on that. Now, one question I received over and over and over again, and I have to ask it is what are the best exercises or exercise or combination of exercises for the average middle-aged woman who's looking to lose fat, body fat, because in our groups, we talk a lot about strength training and just being active and, you know, doing some type of flexibility training and making sure you're getting enough sleep. But obviously you may have a very different answer and not everyone can do hardcore hit or Tabata. I always Mm -hmm. tell people it's good to get a little breathy, but if it leaves you, as you mentioned, needing to go home and take a nap or you, you know, you're so exhausted, then you've done too much. And we can touch on when we talk a little bit about hormones, you know, how we can overtax our adrenal glands in perimenopause and menopause by just doing too much, which we're all Mm -hmm. kind of prone to doing. Right. Yes. So For that middle, first of all, so to answer that, none of you are average, by the way. So, (laughs) but for that woman who has those goals, like I want to see more muscle than I'm seeing more fat and potentially lose or keep the fat off. Best exercises are going to be those for major muscle groups that are compound in nature, which typically means we're moving more than one joint. So here's the worst absolute If I would see a trainer working for me in the gym, clearly standing with someone who most likely had a weight loss goal, doing standing one arm dumbbell curls, she was going to be in my office as soon as that session was over explaining to me why that was important. (laughs) You know, there is no way that you want to spend your precious exercise time doing that. So movements like squats, lunges, and I'm going to come back to if you're saying, but my knees, no, there's a substitute. So if you can't, there is also this. So if this, then that, we'll come back to it. Chest press, bent over rows or any kind of pulling. So if you're in a gym, a lap pull down or a rowing machine, those are some of your best core 
exercises. So we use that word core a lot, but when we say core, the middle and the meat of all that you're doing should be centered around those kinds of activities. You're going to stimulate the most muscle mass, which is going to in turn stimulate the most metabolism boost during that exercise. The difference between say a bar class, and I was a dance major, minor, so I'm not, you know, discriminating, but the bar class and being in the weight room actually doing squats and lunges and chest press, although you may get some muscle toning work, the exercises you're doing here are more isolative and isometric and small range of motion and not enough to actually take you to that muscular fatigue. Even though you may feel the burn over here, it's not the same. It's just not the same as going to full range of motion thinking about you've got to push yourself up out of a chair. That's not a big deal right now, let's hope, but in 30 or 40 years it is. So you're training for that right now, that marathon that you're going to do. So it's those types of exercises where we're working on big muscles of your chest, of your back, of your lower body, the glutes, the quadriceps in the front of your thighs, the hamstrings in the back of them. And then I like to think of it as a bullseye. That's your middle. That's right there, target. You have 10 minutes to spend three exercises, a squat, a chest press, and a bent over row done three times. That's the best way to spend that 10 minutes. You're going to get the most bang for your buck. You are staying consistent. Check. I'm somebody who exercises regularly and I stimulated my metabolism. If you have more time than that, then outer range becomes things where you're actually doing a little bit more isolation. So maybe it's bicep curls, maybe it's a tricep press, whether it's overhead or it's behind you, depending on who you are. Maybe it's a longer lever with a bicep curl and a tricep kickback. Maybe it is a machine where you're doing a leg extension and a hamstring curl. So kind of fewer joints involved means fewer muscles involved, still major muscles, but that's how you would spend the next layer. And then that outer layer is, you know, much smaller muscles. And although important, especially if you have an injury, for instance, a shoulder injury, but doing small lateral raises or front raises or reverse flies for your shoulders, because we're getting smaller and smaller. So if we're talking metabolism, big muscles, then fewer joints, but still large muscles, and then your smaller muscles. So that's kind of metabolism and bone density in a nutshell. I love that because it provides kind of this visual representation of what we're really aiming for. And so strength training at least twice a week, you know, being active, I always say that's just part of living. Like we breathe, we need to remain active. What are your thoughts on flexibility work? Like people doing yoga one day a week, maybe that's on a day where they're taking a, a day away from the gym or doing solid core for full disclosure, solid core has become one of my favorite things to do because it challenges me mentally and physically. In fact, I was away for three weeks, took my first class this morning because we moved last month. And I actually told the trainer, I was like, this class is humbling because I think I'm so strong. And then if you're away for a little bit of time, you're like, oh, there's those muscles I haven't worked in a while. Like I may have worked the larger muscle, but now, but for me, it's usually an off day kind of exercise that I will do, but it's something that I definitely enjoy. But I'm curious, you know, what your feelings are in flexibility work and yoga and things like that. 
Yeah. Well, first of all, it's a little bit like vegetables, right? So nobody ever ate too many vegetables. Nobody ever stretched too much or did too much mobility. And for some who might be here, and it's been a while since you've exercised, starting with just mobility and take the just out because that potentially for the first couple of weeks would be the best thing that you could do. You'll be opening things back up, getting rotation and extension and flexion and lateral flexion back into your body and to your spine so that adding more, that next step will be more comfortable when you do it. And when we're exercising and it's more comfortable and that's outside of what you've just said. So the challenge of exercise is different than it feeling uncomfortable for you to be in doing the movement. But you're going to want to rinse and repeat, right? So it should feel comfortable. But I think flexibility every day. And that might mean that at the end of every time that you exercise, there should be some mobility and flexibility work. And I'm slipping that mobility word in where we grew up hearing it as flexibility, right? The muscle strength, muscle endurance, flexibility. These are components of fitness. And yet, we don't necessarily want flexibility for flexibility's sake. We used to have you sit on the floor and do the seated toe reach, right? That, And then we were like, this is a really bad test. So all we're seeing is rounding of the back. We're not really seeing any measure of flexibility. So what we know is we really need mobility, the ability for you to move in your full range of motion. That's what's truly important. So whether that is your preference to do Pilates or yoga, and I'm not familiar with solid core. So now I have research to do after I get off. So you've created a little work for me. <laughs> I've got to go look and see what that is. But getting some kind of full range of motion work in every day and the most logical time to do it is doing it after you've done a workout of some kind, gone for a walk, you've done strength training, you've done your intervals, because then your body is warm. The muscles are pliable and ready for that range of motion. So always a great time to throw in and, and five minutes at the end of a cool down is enough to get regular work in. And then if you have a Pilates or a yoga or a solid core class that you do in a longer stretch. And for those of you who really love exercise and find it really hard when I say potentially do less and you'll get better results. Sometimes those kinds of classes filling in for you instead of doing a hit, it's like a smoker. If we take that away, we better put a pen or lipstick in your fingertips similarly. So you can put something else in there just as long as it doesn't throw you under the bus. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one, -on -one, interpreting your data 
and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code EWP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. At some point, we've all been sold a big fat lie. It's called the protein misconception. So starting in the 1980s, we all believe that more protein equated to more muscle growth. And I'm here to tell you it's a big misconception. This has a great deal to do that our body can only absorb protein that's broken down into smaller building blocks called amino acids. It doesn't matter if you're consuming 30 grams of protein or 300 grams of protein. If you don't have a sufficient supply of enzymes to digest the protein, your muscles will ultimately be unable to use these as vital building blocks. That's why it's crucial you take a high quality digestive enzyme. The one I trust and use myself is called Masszymes by Bi Optimizers. Masszymes is a full spectrum enzyme formula with more protease than any other commercially available product with five different forms of protease. Plus, it contains all the other key enzymes you need for optimal digestion. If you're experiencing bloating, gas, or digestive distress, a contributing factor can be that your body is no longer producing as much digestive enzymes. And you can try Masszymes today, risk-free. They have a 365-day full money-back guarantee and is the gold standard in the industry. Go to biooptimizers.com slash Cynthia. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com slash Cynthia and use promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off of any order. Again, that's promo code Cynthia10 for 10% off any order. I love that. And I think it's important for many of us that really do love being physically active. For me, you know, we're in a position where 90% of our belongings are in storage right now. (laughs) And that includes all of my home gym equipment, you know, without having a gym. So for me, I'm almost like a dog with a bone. It's like, I need to do something (laughs) that keeps me intellectually and physically stimulated at all times. Now you mentioned at the very beginning that you do take supplements and I'm very open that I do as well. What are some of your favorite supplements to recommend or suggest to your clients that benefit them in terms of 
their results. I'm curious because, you know, my family laughs. I mean, when we move, it's like I have boxes of different types (laughs) of supplements that I like having at the ready. I may not take them every day, but, you know, kind of starting off with the supplements that you find are most beneficial for like the average client that you're working with. Obviously there is no one that's average per se, but, you know, for some of the things that people are looking for when they come to you, what have been, you know, some kind of high point beneficial supplements that you have suggested? Yeah, definitely. So it's so of course, just the basics. So I take a multi, you know, very high quality, but for a lot of women, so these things, and I'm sure we're probably going to be on the same page here, but vitamin D. So we, we all know we need it. We need that sunshine. But as far as exercise goes, it's fast twitch muscle fiber supportive. And what does that mean? So two things. I did a whole media tour around the country back in the day. We used to travel. This was a couple of years ago about fast twitch muscle fiber, because even though a lot of us are doing interval training, we may be doing that interval training, say running on a treadmill or up a hill. That is still not fast twitch muscle fiber. Our fast twitch muscle fibers are responsible for two things, our reaction skills. So fast twitch muscle fibers, you know, are stimulated when you're like doing something your kids might do when they go to camp, you're doing ladder drills, you're doing quickly moving through the tires or through a ladder, or you're imagining it on your tile on your floor or the boards on your deck. And you're moving quickly and rapidly and doing kind of a foxtrot, like a one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. And that kind of reaction skill or somebody's behind you throwing a ball at the wall and you have to respond to it, that causes fast twitch. And if you play with a really poor tennis partner, that causes you to need your fast twitch muscle fiber. That's good, too. So those kinds of things we need so we don't trip when we're older. And we need those reaction skills actually now because we're seeing falls happen earlier and earlier for women who are not training their fast twitch muscle fiber. And I'm saying 40s to 50s is when that's starting. So that's number one reason for vitamin D. The second one is metabolism. It's very related to your metabolism. So fast twitch is also related to anaerobic work, which is what strength training and high intensity interval training are. So we need for muscle, you need that vitamin D and so many of us are deficient and insufficient, as you know. So I recommend testing that way you're not just shooting blanks and taking the base because if you're dug into a hole, you got to fill that hole up. The base is not enough for you, sister. So that's one magnesium more so because it helps with recovery and getting to sleep. But a lot of my women will say muscle cramps, I've got muscle cramps and where I'm getting headaches and migraines and I can't sleep and getting adequate sleep, high quality sleep. And whether it's longer or not is really crucial to your recovery from exercise. So you feel like you can exercise when you get up in the morning. So it's kind of a vicious circle, whichever way it starts for you. Magnesium is a big one. And I've noticed this, having worked with more women over in midlife over my whole career, that they don't tell anybody, but a very high percentage of us is constipated and we just tolerate it. And I've found that increasing magnesium will often help them overcome that and stop tolerating it. And then you actually feel like exercising. So it's, you know, I mean, nobody feels like exercising if they're feeling full and bloated for that reason. 
omega-3s. So especially if you are somebody who either has joint and ligament issues, and there are some studies about people who have really severe knee issue and pain, and the higher doses of omega-3 that they took, those who were like the worse off did better and got the most results, which is a lot like having a lot more weight to lose. You'll see progress sooner than those who have just a little bit of weight to lose. But the clinical studies, the doses were something like six to nine grams, which essentially is like six to nine times the dose on a bottle typically. So I'm just telling you that for information's sake. And I will tell you what I do So when I'm training or was, and I think my days of Ironman training may be done, my body is just telling me I'm done. And and the last one didn't go so well for me. There was kind of like, no, 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 you know, and typically proved to myself that long endurance exercise is really not great for women in midlife. And, you know, but I would do like three times the omega-3. So I was taking about 3000 grams a day, kind of doing a thousand at three different times to help decrease inflammation. And again, you typically have it anyway. And then if you're adding exercise to it, that can make it fire up even more. So I find for women who've got arthritis or who've got low cartilage levels in their knees and find they're they're very uncomfortable, that improves as they experiment with omega-3s and increasing that more into their diet. So that was a big one. Those are probably my biggest three, but the last one that this is more recent for me than normal and never, ever, ever in 37 years. And I bet you can relate to this. Have I ever had somebody say, Deborah, I just love taking supplements. You know, so I'm not very quick to say, have you thought about this? Because who loves that? Nobody. And I don't either. You know, even though I know this is good, I literally hate taking them. So amino acids. So for too many in my community at Flipping 50, I'm getting more and more women who want to or have done so for heart health reasons. And their doctor has advised go plant-based. And it is almost impossible to get adequate protein on a plant-based diet without getting full because every plant-based protein source has a lot of fiber, has a lot of carbohydrates, and you just reach a quota where you can't take in anymore. And there's a lower amino acid profile to it. So, you know, comparing a steak to chicken, to salmon, to plant-based, to collagen, you know, that downward slide, we've got to figure out how can I get it if not that. So, Amino acids have really come into conversation with me and clients for that reason. But even me, you know, and I'm I'm diligent about eating three meals a day and taking in at least 30 grams of protein at each, but really for where I need to be, body weight and grams of protein, I'm not there in that. And I can't eat more at each meal. So I've started adding amino acids and I've tested them over years, but never consistently and diligently until very recently. So I've, you know, come to introduce them and I'm using them every day in sliding scale. So if I'm doing strength training, I'll increase it just a little bit more and I'm doing a couple different doses a day. Otherwise it's there. And yet, as I say that it's food first. So I don't want somebody to immediately think, 
oh, good, you know, I can skip that meal and I can just take the aminos instead. I think we've got to think about the whole collective micronutrient density that we need from the foods we're getting, not just taking it in a bottle. But it's like get there with food as far as you can go and then supplement where you need to go the rest of the distance. I think that's a really important distinction to make that we, you know, I always say it all starts with food and then adding in supplements if you can't get there. Now, vitamin D, for those that don't know, it's involved in immune function and and actually in given hopefully the downward trend of the pandemic, we know that those individuals with the lowest vitamin D levels generally tended to be the most metabolically unhealthy and the ones who had the worst outcomes. So vitamin D is involved in immune function as well as, you know, insulin sensitivity. So you obviously want to make sure your vitamin D levels are therapeutic. I like to see values above 60 magnesium without question. I mean, this is an electrolyte that all of us need more of in our lives. And I always say, if you're stressed, you need more magnesium. Obviously there's different formulations. I think magnesium glycinate is awesome. If people are dealing with constipation. And as you stated, no one wants to deal with constipation. Many people still are uncomfortable talking about the fact they're not having bowel movements. And I tell people all the time, constipation is not normal, nor should we normalize it. So it's important that you're having a bowel movement at least once or twice a day. In fact, in my schooling, I was taught you should have one after every meal. And I'm not sure everyone has enough time in their schedule for that. When I think about omega-3s, a lot of this has to do with the fact that, you know, the number one consumed fat source in the United States is soybean oil, which is an inflammatory omega-6 seed oil. And so if you think about that in and of itself, most of us are inflamed to begin with. So Mm -hmm. I think that's a nice addition. And the amino acids piece, this spins everyone's wheels. I know when I was talking with Gabrielle Lyon recently, she had mentioned, you know, if people find one gram per pound of ideal body weight, really overwhelming, just aim for a hundred grams of protein a day. And, you know, that could be your 30, 40 per meal. And then kind of backloading from there, you know, amino acids are a great option. I mean, sometimes I'm trying to get them in my kids because even trying to keep teenagers, they're constantly hungry. That can be problematic. Now I want to be super respectful of your time, but I do want to touch on just one more thing on your website. I read a statistic that I thought was really, it's a good way to kind of bring home to women, the hormone piece as it relates to middle age. So the loss of estradiol or which is the most active form of estrogen prior to going through menopause can increase visceral fat by 10% in six months. I'm going to say that again, the loss of estrogen can increase visceral fat. So the fat around your organs, your belly, et cetera, by 10% in six months. So I want to leave the listeners kind of thinking about, you know, how this loss of estrogen and progesterone and testosterone, as we get closer to menopause how that can manifest, because I know both you and I have spoken privately and I had initially been very like anti taking bioidenticals or hormone replacement therapy until (laughs) I had, this is funny. I can laugh about this now only because I'm over, I'm now more informed, but until I found out I was osteopenic, I was also losing muscle mass. Like over the last two years, I've lost so much muscle mass. And then my sleep quality was really starting to slide despite doing all the things. It was becoming like an extra job to try to make sure I could sleep through the night. And the thing that's interesting is the first night I took or just oral progesterone, I fell asleep in the bed talking to my husband. He looked over at me and he said, you just fell asleep like instantly. And I woke up in the morning in corpse pose. Like I didn't move. My body so desperately needed progesterone. So I don't want anyone who's listening to feel fearful 
about the possibility of hormone replacement therapy or bioidenticals. And obviously every person that's listening has different needs, has different philosophies on this. But as a healthcare provider, I have never felt better. In fact, I don't think I realized, I think it was a slow kind of drain on my body that I just kind of had gotten very accustomed to not waking up without an alarm anymore and really struggling to stay asleep and losing muscle mass, and obviously bone mass, which is a whole other other kind of topic. I'd love for you to just touch on the things that you've seen working with clients, you know, the before and after, you know, how they feel, how they respond to exercise, how much more metabolically flexible they become with the addition of that hormonal support. Because once we lose it, our body will try to make more estrogen, but it makes a weaker form called estrone through fat tissue. You know, our body really leans on the adrenal glands to make more progesterone, but it makes it harder for our adrenal glands to respond to stress. And so I'd love for you to just briefly touch on the things that you've seen working with clients, even with yourself, as it pertains to replacement of those hormones that we've lost. Yeah. And you're such a great example, really, because you are small, right? In stature, you're a small person. And yet I've got a lot of women in our community who don't all need to lose weight. Some of them are small. They really don't have any weight to lose. They definitely have lean to gain, actually, so that they don't become frail. And they've lost lean muscle or bone density, but they've also gained that belly fat. So it's like they've had a relocation, not necessarily a gain. And so typical. And I think a mutual friend of ours, so Sean Tassone, will say, you know, that it's like evolution, you know, is that reason for that 10 pound weight gain that happens and tends to deposit around the midsection and or no gain, but still a deposit around that midsection is almost your body's protective factor for you've lost that bone density protector. It's actually gaining weight to help you have more support against your bones. So in the the theory behind that is heavy women, so larger size women, very rarely have bone density issues unless they've been long-term on medications that have affected them. And so what we've seen, so during the pandemic, there's been some really great changes. So prior to the pandemic end of 2019, I had a woman find me. Ironically, she found me online and realized she's 20 minutes away. And she's like, oh my gosh, can I meet with you in person? I said, you know, I rarely do that, but it is actually super fun for me to like see real people. So I said, absolutely. So we'll do that. She was diagnosed with osteoporosis. And and as it does for so many women, it feels like somebody just pulled the rug out from underneath you. You feel like you're thriving, you're healthy, and then feel threatened. Like, what does that mean for my future? I'm a grandmother. I run a company. You know, I mean, this was all going through her head. And so we met a few times in a gym. And I showed her, this is what you want to be doing. Very similar to what we talked about. These are your core exercises, the most important for you. These are the things I want you to do. Pandemic hits. And so then we met once or twice via Skype. And I said, this is how you're going to do these things at home. Same idea, different way of doing it with your dumbbells at home. And this is what we're going to do. And I also suggested something to her that you may want to weigh in on, but algae cow. 
So she went on LGCAL as a supplement. So I want to make it clear that weight training alone will not increase your bone density if you're a woman in menopause or postmenopause. We just we can't do that. What we typically are doing is slowing losses. If we slow them down and instead of losing one to three percent of your bone density a year, you lose one or you don't lose any, we've made a significant change in your health. And that accelerated loss of three to five years during menopause, that's going to be significant for your future. But she contacted me after she kind of went off on her own. She was doing it at home. You know, she's a CEO. She's a woman in charge. She did not need me to connect with her week to week. But she contacted me almost a year to the day. She had a next bone density scan. And she had increased her bone density by 1%. And that is so rarely heard of. But in studies for algae cal, I mean, I sound like a poster child and I am not related or an affiliate for them, but I have found that it works and works without risk that I know of to date for anyone. And the results have shown over time, that kind of increase happens even longitudinally in a seven-year study, 1% every year. And that's huge. So the ability to feel like I'm doing something proactive, I am seeing the results. This is actually working. Her doctor was thrilled, you know, not only about the exercise program, but the combination of the two. And I mean, she's like a star in the community <laughs> for her doctor and Cal. So we've seen that. I've seen a woman who was on her way to losing 100 pounds, really seeking that. And in her mid 60s. So listen, you know, it's never too late. And she crossed the 100 pound weight loss threshold exercising at home during the pandemic. So seven months, she didn't lose all 100 of that. Let me make that clear. But she got the rest of the way. And I think she's at about 104 pounds loss total now. But she's exercising at home. And she's like, you know, I thought about going back to the gym now that it's open. And I'm like, it's just so convenient. I think I might stay at home. And she's having great results. So we know it's possible. You know, and if you're at home and you're loving it, you're loving the convenience of it, you know, it's a viable way to do it. I love those stories. It's so inspiring and encouraging. I don't know about AlgaCal. So I'm going to, much like you not knowing about Solicor, I'm going to have something to go (laughs) read about. But certainly for me, that was a huge determinant of why testosterone was something that is part of my hormone replacement therapy, because that was the concern was you know, it's not going to get better. It's going to get worse unless we're really proactive. Well, I want to be super respectful of your time. How can listeners connect with you? I know without question, based on the amount of questions I got prior to our episode today, that people will want to connect with you. How can they work with you? How can they learn more about you? You've got a great podcast. I was enjoying listening to it over the weekend. How can people connect with you? So you can find me at flipping 50 com. So that's all words spelled out. And if you're interested in just sticking a toe in the water, I do a five day flip, the number five day flip, flipping50.com forward slash five day flip. And I'm everywhere on social at flipping five zero TV, flipping 50 TV. So look forward to connecting and answering questions. So feel free to reach out if you've got something we missed and didn't get to. 
Well, thank you so much for your time, my friend. I'm looking forward to seeing you next month in California. And for listeners, obviously, Deb and I went almost an hour and a half. So your questions have definitely influenced the direction of the conversation. We'll definitely have you back again. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. Just as you carefully choose the cut of meat or freshness of produce that you cook at home, you should carefully choose chemical-free cookware that provides a healthy and safe cooking experience. The materials in 360 cookware are safe, sustainable, and of the highest quality. Their cookware is 100% free from any toxic chemicals as the company produces quality stainless steel cookware and bakeware without added chemicals, and all are manufactured in the United States. It's also the leading manufacturer that equips kitchens with cookware and bakeware that are free of all of the toxic chemicals and coatings, including PFAS, Teflon, and ceramic. And the best thing is that when used properly, the product's construction provides nonstick properties in a product that can be passed down through generations. Go to www.360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. Again, that's 360cookware.com and use code CYNTHIA20 for 20% off your first order. We've been using their products over the last several months and have really been pleased with not only the durability, but ease of cleanliness.